Well, friends, our, our key truth from these short but poignant words is this. Faith in Jesus responds to his witness by patiently waiting for the fulfillment of his promises. Faith in Jesus responds to his witness by patiently waiting for the fulfillment of his promises. We come this evening to mark the day that Christians have come to call Good Friday. But not that this Friday, or the events of this Friday 2,000 years ago, are good in and of themselves, because what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago on this Friday was the most horrific thing but that our God teaches us that no event is to be considered in and of itself, and especially the cross. So considered in relation to God's redemptive purpose to draw his people back into his fellowship, considered in God's great redemptive purpose to wash us free of our sin, considered in relation to God's great redemptive purpose to overcome the malicious and lying designs of the accuser, Satan, considered in relation to all of these things, yes, this is Good Friday. And it is just in keeping with the wonder and the mystery of the gospel that we are invited to ponder his goodness at the very time our text reminds us of the burial of Jesus. The the burial of the dead, for those of us, I'm sure it's true of all of us, at one time or another, we've been to funerals, we've been to burials. The burial of the dead is not usually a time of joy and celebration. Oh, sure, it, it, it is in the respect that we remember the gospel and we have the hope of the resurrection, but usually it is a very somber and solemn thing. And of course, to natural people who don't have the eyes to see the things of God, that is all it ever is. There's a popular physicist in England called Brian Cox, and he was once asked, well, what do you say to people who say there must be something more? There must be something more to life. There must be something more when I'm at the very lowest and I'm feeling the pain of my own anguish in this fallen and broken world. What do you say to those people? And he said, well, isn't just the wonder of the universe enough for you? I mean, what more, after all, do you really want? To be awake for a little while and to see all the things that you can see and experience the goodness of the world, isn't that enough? What more do you want? But God's people can answer in one word, life. Or in two words, eternal life. Because that's what Jesus came to give us. And so the cross is the proof that in this world, that that thing is possible, life eternal. And death is not the final word. And not only is it possible, but it is actually accomplished in him. So that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him alone for salvation have life and life to the full. Oh, but now we say to ourselves, we come to the point in the story when Jesus is buried. And surely this is the proof that after all, death does have the final say. Surely this is the proof that we know the good promises of God ultimately seem to be buried under a mountain of contravening facts and problems. But not so fast, says John. Let me tell you the story of Joseph of Arimathea and of Nicodemus and the burial of King Jesus. Because we see in these dear brothers, and yes, they are brothers, we see in them that faith in Jesus responds to his witness by patiently waiting for the fulfillment of his promise. Now, Joseph, you may remember, Mark tells us this in Mark chapter 15, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, the very council 
that had come and conspired against King Jesus, the very council that had delivered him over to Pilate to be crucified. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of this very council, and so was Nicodemus. We know Nicodemus from the Gospel of John. We've already met him in John chapter 3, a Pharisee who came to Jesus in the dead of night. And that's significant for John because one of John's great themes is that Jesus is the light of the world and that those who know him come and walk in the light. But Nicodemus, he begins, as so many of us do, coming to Jesus in the dark of night. He's afraid. He doesn't want to be outed as a follower of Jesus, and he comes with many questions. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. So it's significant that at this moment, the very moment when you and I might think to ourselves, here is the time in which we would run away from Jesus and all that he represents, Surely his disciples have done so. The very people who followed him most openly and outly have come and they've run away at this very moment when the gospel seems to be at its lowest ebb. But these two men come and they're willing to be associated with him. They're willing to stick their necks out. They're willing for the world to know that they honor King Jesus. These men have been secret disciples. There are many things that have kept them from openly following Jesus their wealth, and their status. They don't want to lose those things. Most fundamentally, John tells us, they've been afraid. They've been afraid of the consequences of being known as one of Jesus' followers. What is that going to mean for us throughout all of his ministry? Nicodemus met with Jesus at a Passover, probably three years before Jesus had been crucified. And all the while, we don't hear when Jesus is out doing miracles, doing wonders, gaining disciples for a short period and all the crowds who follow him, we don't hear from Nicodemus. We do hear from him at the very end of the story, so it seems, when Jesus is being buried. Jesus had said to Nicodemus, those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And here's Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus in the dead of night three years before, coming out into the light. Dear friends, we see here that Jesus' death was even more efficacious. He was even more effective for the life of the world and these two men and for their own sanctification than his own life and all the miracles that he did in drawing them away from worldly things and from fear and towards a more courageous profession of faith and consistent godliness. We often get these things turned around, don't we? We flip the script. We think... Well, if only I see Jesus doing all of his miracles, if only I see Jesus in all of his power, if only I see him face to face, that is the thing that is going to make me a more courageous witness for Jesus. That is the thing that is going to draw me closer to him. But it wasn't so in the life of Joseph of Arimathea. And it wasn't so in the life of Nicodemus. At the very time when Jesus could not have done any more miracles, at the very time when his kingdom seems to be falling apart, at the very time when all of his other disciples have run away, that is the time in which the Spirit does his mighty work and casts aside all their idols, casts aside all their worldly ambition, helps them to overcome their fear. Christ's death was more efficacious for these two men than even his light. And he said... The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, at the very time in which Jesus seems to be enveloped in darkness, in the very time when we might be afraid that the gospel is over, that the hope of forgiveness has been buried in this tomb, that is when 
God is at his most, God is doing his most in the life of these two men to draw them away from fear and their idol, their idols. Oh, the reverence of these two men. It's the beauty of these passages that make the cross, I think, such a wonder for us. We see there is really something very supernatural about it. Why should they now, of all times, come out as followers of Jesus? When the disciples have run away, they stick their necks out for him. They are lavish in their generosity towards him. What a welcome they will receive in the new heavens and the new earth. What a welcome it will be for them to be invited into the heavenly kingdom, to see King Jesus no longer in his tomb, to see him raised up in glory and power. And they were willing to put their faith in him at the very time when it seemed that was all gone. Friends, that's how the gospel began, and that's how it began in our lives too. These two fellows were willing to stick their necks out, to be associated with the Jesus movement, and eventually that movement became the way. That's how people described it early on. It's just the way. Until the world in derision said, well, yeah, really, you guys, you're just, you're just Christ followers, you Christians. And the Christians said, yeah, just so. You're right. The, the, the gospel is God's people coming to see in Jesus Christ the promised Messiah and to put their trust in him, coming to believe that what John wrote in his opening prologue really is true. No one has seen the Father, but Jesus He's come to reveal him. Those who lived in great darkness have seen a great light in Jesus Christ. And the gospel, salvation, is our being willing in faith to associate ourselves with him because he came to be ours. These two men, they become Christians in that moment. So faith in Jesus, if it ever is so small and fledgling, if it ever is so incomplete, is still seen by him as faith in him and it is loved by him. Oh, with what compassion and grace does Jesus look upon us, even the very weakest of us. Oh, with what honor does he designate us, even with the very weakest faith. We are his disciples. I just love how the Holy Spirit, through the gospel writer John, describes Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus. Yes, for a long time, secretly, because he was afraid. For a long time, it was not open. For a long time, you and I would have looked at Joseph of Arimathea and thought, there's no way he's a disciple of Jesus. He's not even willing to be associated with him publicly. He's a disciple of Jesus. Now, what does that do in his life? Eventually, he comes into the light, as all disciples of Jesus do. Eventually, he has to turn away from the false idols of safety and security in which he'd been hoping and all of his wealth and all the things he'd wrongly been trusting in and come out as a follower of Jesus. But he was, and the same for Nicodemus. So, dear friends, let's see that as a great encouragement this season. Let's see that as a great encouragement. So many of us may be laboring to keep secret things that we feel Keep us away from Jesus. Keep secret things that we feel, if others only knew, they would not accept us. If others only knew, they would not say we were followers of Jesus. In this, let us see that even the very weakest faith is accepted by him. So come into the light. You are dearly loved, more than you could ever possibly comprehend. For Jesus loved these two men. 
And Jesus' burial in a garden in a new tomb, it signifies something else. It signifies the truth that he is the firstborn from the dead, as Paul will later say in Colossians. He's the first fruits of them that rise, as Paul will say to the Corinthians. The uniqueness of his resurrection is in this. It will vindicate his witness. His witness that death and sin and corruption and the devil really have been overcome in him. So he's laid in a new tomb in which no one else has been laid. He's laid to rest as a king with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. This would have been a kingly, a kingly gift. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they are not slack in the way that they honor Jesus. So, so dear friends, you should see in this that their witness to us is, is not the sort of half-hearted or you know, uh, footnoted kind of honor to Jesus. That is really making big statements here. They're really sticking their necks out for him. This would have been a lavish show. People would have talked about it. It would have been noticed. We don't know how their story ended up for them. We don't know what happened to their positions on the Sanhedrin. We don't know how other people talked about it. But more than likely, it was very risky. And more than likely, they paid for it very dearly. But they were not slow to honor Jesus. This was a kingly burial. And in this way, I think we see God's vindication even yet of Jesus, even before he is resurrected. Yes, Jesus has undergone the most horrific death that any person could undergo. Yes, he has paid the penalty and God has laid upon him the sins of us all. But in his burial, God is, as it were, saying, this is a king. And we will honor him as a king. In his rest, he rests as a king. So Jesus' death, in his death, he is already being vindicated. God is already saying to him, this is my beloved son. Everyone who trusts in him will be resurrected as he will soon be resurrected. With what honor does God grant these two wealthy individuals, these two well-connected men, the privilege to be connected to Jesus in this way? Dear friends, what would it have been like if the burial of Jesus had been left to his disciples? It probably would not have been as meaningful as it is for us, thanks to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. What would it have been like if the burial of Jesus had been just, just been taking care of the Roman soldiers because all of his disciples had ran away? What if, his, what if his burial was up to his family? We know his brothers weren't there. It was only his mother. She's, of course, overcome with her grief. Dear friends, the Lord in his goodness allowed these two men, wealthy and well-connected as they were, to preach a witness to us that Jesus is a king and he rested in his grave as a king because God even then was vindicating his witness. What a rotten burial Jesus would have gotten had it been left to his poor disciples. It would not have communicated as much, so nearly so much, to our understanding of the resurrection and who Jesus is. And so let us thank God that in his wisdom, he wisely distributes his gifts. There is a necessary part, even for the wealthy, to play in his kingdom. God does not look upon us and judge us as good because we are wealthy. He does not look upon us and judge us as good because we are poor. He makes his judgment solely on the basis of how we respond to Jesus Christ. And that is what these two disciples, these two brothers, communicate to us. Oh, the regality of Jesus' burial here. It's a witness to his coming vindication and ours too. We hope in him. So Good Friday, 
Yes, it's a horrific thing that we remember Jesus' death, but yes, it is Good Friday because it communicates to us the vindication of Jesus, his kingly burial. He will rise again, and we with him if we put our faith in him. So what shall we say to these things? Well, we shall say this. God has won in Christ, and Christ Jesus is presently reigning. He's bringing his kingdom to bear in the world. He is transforming hearts and minds in a thousand ways all around us in a thousand unexpected places. If you and I had been at this point in history, in this point in the story, and seen these two men, we would never have expected that Jesus was working in the way that he was. But he was. Even in his burial, he is drawing these two men to a more courageous faith in him. And if that's true of them, how much more in our day and age? How little excuse we have as Christians, seeing this story and knowing the gospel, how little excuse we have for despair, even when things seem darkest. If this is happening when Jesus is buried, if this is happening at the moment, we might think to our natural eyes, the gospel is over and God really has turned his face away. If this is happening, if God is drawing these two men to a more courageous faith in him, what else is going on? What else has gone on in our lives that we have yet to fully see and fully appreciate? Wonder of wonders, fearful Joseph and Nicodemus buried Jesus as a king. And in that way, they're witnesses to us. The faith in Jesus responds to his witness by patiently waiting for the fulfillment of his promise. And that's why we can sing with good old Isaac Watts, should all the forms that men devise Assault my faith with treacherous art. I'd call them vanity and lies and bind the gospel to my heart. Let's do that today. And as we wait for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection, let's bind the gospel to our hearts because that is the witness of these two brothers in the burial of King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for this opportunity that we have to remember your death and burial. Lord, to the natural eyes, to us in our own understanding, these things seem to be the very opposite of good, the very opposite of things to celebrate. And yet because we have your word and spirit, and because we have the witness of your people, even Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, we see, Lord, that you really have conquered in King Jesus. You really have washed us clean of our sin. You really have triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. You really have given us new life in him. And so, Lord, we ask, help us to see Jesus. Help us to love him with all of our hearts and soul and strength and mind. Lord, help us to put aside our fear and anxiety. Lord, help us to see him, to see his triumph, to love him as our king, and to wait patiently for the fulfillment of all of his promises. We can't do it in our own strength, but we are gloriously confirmed, Lord, that you are doing that because of your promises to us in the Holy Spirit. If you did it for these two men, you will do it for us. And so we ask these things in his mighty name and say, amen.